0: Take a week off and you get out of rhythm. And I've got to dismiss the kids. All right. Children are dismissed. We're going to get this show ordered uh, at some point today. Uh, So, children five through eight are dismissed to their chapel time. And our New Testament lesson this morning is found in Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. This is God's Word. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Let's pray. Father, as we come into your presence this morning, hearing your word, we ask that you will speak, that you will direct and guide us into all truth, that you will Teach us what it means to work out our salvation because it is you who is at work within us. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Several years ago, I was exposed to a study. It was a study done on kids at playgrounds. There were two control groups. One group of children was sent to a playground, a piece of equipment, in the middle of a large field. And they were given the freedom to play wherever they wanted. Another group of children was sent to a playground inside of an enclosed fence area. And they were told that they had to play inside the fence. The point of the study was to see where the kids actually played. Those who were given the broad expanse of the equipment in the middle of a large field and those who played in the midst of a fenced-in area. Can you guess what group of children took advantage of the most square footage? It was not the ones who had the large field. They actually stayed huddled by the equipment. They clung to the equipment. They played on it. The children, however, who were given the boundaries, the fence around the playground, used almost every square inch of the playground. They played on the equipment, and they played all around it, and they pushed all the way to the boundaries of the fence. That there was some kind of safety inside the boundaries, and it gave them more freedom. And when it comes to reading this short epistle of the Apostle Paul, the book of Philippians, it is all about freedom. It's the freedom the gospel gives. But Paul sees Christian freedom as something unique because it has boundaries. But those boundaries that God gives us actually give us a certain kind of thriving, a certain kind of freedom where we flourish. And this morning is about a topic that makes us uncomfortable. It is about obedience. And as western people, we don't like the topic of obedience. We need to be honest about that. That we tend to think that freedom exists when we can do whatever we want whenever we want. That is what freedom is. But for Paul, he understands freedom not to be that right to do whatever you want whenever you want. He understands that freedom really happens for human beings when they have proper boundaries. That we're like those kids. And that inside of those boundaries, then there is flourishing and there's blessing for us. That when God commands us to do something, when He gives us commands and requires obedience of us, it's for our good. And perhaps one of our most significant and deepest challenges is to believe that. So how can we believe, though, that the commands of God are good? Last week, it was really a tragedy to be away when you're reading Philippians 2, 1 through 11. It's my favorite passage in the entire Bible, and it'll take many years before we recycle it now. And so I hope not to re-preach it too much, but I will confess that I plan to somewhat. Because what is laid out there is the reason that obedience to Jesus is not burdensome. We have to remember that Paul concludes saying that Jesus has been given the name that is above every name. He is the sovereign ruler over all the ends of the earth. And the reason that he can be the sovereign we can trust, and we know that his power is not abusive, we know that his power is not manipulative, is because he was also the servant who became obedient to the point of death. That Jesus' sovereignty is always exercised in the context of service. And so His commands of you, His sacrifice, and His sacrifice always frames the way that we understand His commands. That they are for our good. That Jesus rules us for our good. Directing us in the pathways of what it means to be truly human. And so when we receive this command in 12, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Paul is saying, look, you've obeyed, but now, in my absence, how much more do you need to obey? He grounds that command in this great work of Jesus Christ, the sovereign who rules over all things, who serves us, and he frees us to submit to his authority because it's good and it's for us. And so the major question for us this morning is, what does this obedience look like? How does it play out? We find it in verses 12 and 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This is the command. This provides the fence. That we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And this is the summary. In other words, we are to work out Among us, what God is working in us. That there is both a corporate and an individual component to this. That we are to work out among us as a community what God is working in us by His Spirit. And so inevitably two questions arise in this. What does it mean to work out your salvation? And secondly, how do we do it? So let's deal with the first. What does it mean to work out your salvation? Now there's several errors to avoid here. This has made many Protestant people sweat. What is Paul talking about when he says, work out your salvation? Let's be clear that this is not a command to save yourself by your own diligence and effort. Paul does not somehow backtrack on the grace of God here, okay? Okay? Paul would perfectly agree with what William Temple said. He said all is of God. The only thing of my very own that I contribute to my redemption is the sin from which I need to be redeemed. Okay? That's your only unique contribution. Is the sin that needs you need to be redeemed from. And Paul is not somehow pulling away from the grace of God when he tells us to work out our salvation. We'll get into the reason why in just a moment. But when he gives us this command to work it out, he's not saying to save yourself, okay? Now, a second error that we need to avoid is this is not an invitation to lessen your dependence upon the grace of God. It's not an invitation for you to bring something to the table that it'll be like a 50-50 barter with God, where you bring something and God brings something, he kind of fills in your gaps, okay? Okay? Paul's not commanding you to work out your salvation so that you can have some kind of 50-50 halfway house relationship with God. This is not what he means either. John Newton, one of my long-dead mentors now, wrote a series of letters. This is what he was known for. And he wrote to a friend, Lord Dartmouth, and he wrote this. He said, I fear that some part of my striving against sin and my desires after an increase of sanctification arise from a secret wish that I may not be so absolutely and entirely indebted to God. Newton recognized that there was just this selfish component inside of his striving for holiness, even, that at times he was trying to lessen his sense of dependence upon God, and he would enter into a contractual type of relationship with God that he was prone to do so. And friends, God is not inviting us into that kind of relationship when He commands us to work out our salvation. That's not what Paul means either. But there's another important error to avoid. Because when we are commanded to work out our salvation, this is also not saying that activity and effort are separate from the grace of God. On the way to ultimate and final salvation, which the Apostle Paul is very clear, that we have been saved, and then he even uses the language of we're being saved, and then in Romans 8, he talks about we will be saved. And this is the ultimate sense of salvation, when we're raised from the dead, okay? And on the way to that ultimate and final salvation, we do apply activity and effort, and sometimes we can become so absorbed in our own language. We can begin to say things like, well, religion is about do and the gospel is about done. And that's true up to a certain point. But then it can become applied in such a way where we think that there is no effort in the Christian life. And clearly, Paul says, work it out. There is effort. There is energy. There is striving. There is attaining. That's the language he uses in Philippians 3. And to deny that kind of language is to go against Scripture. That yes, our salvation is accomplished for us by Jesus, but that salvation is applied through the work of the Spirit in our lives. John Murray, professor at Westminster Seminary during the earlier part of the last century, he wrote this about... What Paul was writing. He says, God's working in us is not suspended because we work, nor our working suspended because God works. God works and we also work. And then listen very carefully to this. But the relation is that because God works, we work. All working out of salvation on our part is the effect of God's working in us. Our working out of our salvation is simply the result of God being at work in us. Look what Paul says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And so the grace of God through the Spirit of God is at work in us, leading us to work out our salvation. One of Calvin's favorite quotes from Augustine that he uses over and over in the Institutes of, of of religion, is this simple line, God, command what you will and give what you command. And Augustine was working out of this idea that the Apostle Paul lays out here in Philippians 2. That God must give to us in order that we could obey His command. That all is of the grace of God. That you don't enter into some kind of 50-50 contract where you give something and God gives something. That all of your work, all of your effort is empowered by the grace of God. That God gives you the inclination. That God gives you the energy. That God gives you the strength. That is how we work out our salvation. But perhaps the biggest thing we have to understand is what does God want us to work out? We've talked a good bit about the book of Philippians and the backdrop as to what was going on in the community. And we said that it's summed up in chapter 4. If you look in verse in chapter 4, verse 2, Paul says, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. He's been speaking of unity. He has been speaking of putting the interest of others ahead of your own. And then he gets very direct with these two women who were obviously in an argument that was splitting apart the community. And he says, I want you to agree in the Lord. You need to put down your warfare. And so that is in the backdrop of everything that Paul writes here. And so specifically, what is he wanting us to work out? It's the same thing that we discovered in chapter 1 and verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. What is Paul wanting them to work out? He's wanting them to work out having a common heart and a common mind, being unified in the one spirit, serving together, striving together, standing against their opponents. And so the command here to work out their salvation is to work out the salvation that God has given them to be this colony of heaven on earth, to be God's unique people to be united of one heart and one mind, free from dissension, free from division. And so what needs to happen to us though that we can be that people who are working out our salvation? About a decade ago, I took a job at Second Presbyterian in Memphis, Tennessee. And I was the young adults minister uh, during my time there. And uh, and so I inherited a dysfunctional group of about 12 young adults. It was all kinds of a mess and a wreck. And then God gave us some success and things began to go okay. And then there was an evangelism committee put together in the church that was to study how we were to grow the church and to see fresh conversions. And so me and several friends from my ministry group were brought in because we had seen some of this. And uh, and so we were consulted as to our opinion. And there were two major camps of opinions about how to pursue the renewal of Second Presbyterian Church. And, uh, if you know me, I can be opinionated, and so I was in one camp. And, uh, and then there was another camp. And these meetings were between friends, but they were heated. This debate raged on and on for months about how we were going to do this work. There were some that were for hiring one pastor who would be over all evangelism, and there were some who were for hiring several pastors who would be developing community and growing de- deeper in discipleship, in contact with the people, and, uh, and seeing evangelism happen that way. And so the trenches were dug. There was one meeting, I still remember. Committee meetings are my favorite, you'll find. One meeting where the tide suddenly turned. Where suddenly, the powers that be decided that me and my friends were in the right. Right that we were going to move ahead with the plan of hiring multiple pastors who would be involved with uh, with creating and nurturing community on a congregational level because that was what we were seeing was working. And they said, yes, we're going to go with your plan. 48 hours later, we are called into a meeting once again. And we were told, no, that's not happening. That what we're doing is we're hiring a program manager who's going to be over all evangelism. And I remember sitting there thinking, okay, what happened? What, what just happened? I didn't know. I was confused. Certainly a decision had been made behind closed doors and the powers that be had decided that the plan wasn't good and they couldn't go with it. It had offended someone evidently and suddenly the will of the committee was turned on its head and everything went sideways. And unfortunately, what happened was that me and my group of friends became extremely bitter and cynical. Now, to be honest, we had some justification. It was a confusing time, and things were poorly led, and a decision was reversed without any explanation. It was difficult to understand. But what happened in the aftermath was our responsibility. Because we felt like we were justified to then critique and to be angry and to be upset and to be cynical and to continue to hold on to our point. And what was happening was that this was my first real opportunity in church life to take Paul's advice that we find in Philippians 2. And that is to get over yourself. That this was what I was being invited into. That Paul says to do nothing from rivalry or conceit, But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. That God was inviting me into this space where certainly I had been wronged in some ways. I and my friends both had been wronged. But was I going to take up this mindset of Jesus to do nothing from selfish interest? Because you see, humility here is not thinking less of yourself. Humility here, in the pattern and example of Jesus, is not thinking of yourself at all. And I was absorbed with myself. I was absorbed with the wrong that I felt. I was absorbed with the hurt. And it was dictating my actions. And friends, this is what has to happen if we are to work out our salvation if we are to live as a community striving with one heart and one mind, is that there is a degree to which all of us, me included, that we have to get over ourselves. Thinking that our opinion, thinking that our perspective is the most important. Thinking that if it doesn't go our way, then everything is going to go bad. Paul invites us into another kind of life where we put the interest of others ahead of our own, where we submit ourselves to one another, and we can do so because this is Jesus' pattern of life. This is what it means for Him to rule the world. He does so in service. And so this is what it looks like to work out your salvation. It's not just simply checking your boxes for your quiet times. It's learning how to be in relationship inside the church. That this is Paul's primary focus. And that the integrity of our Christian commitment is found in the integrity of the community around us. And so he tells us to work it out. Apply effort to this. And are you doing that? Is it that important to you to be in good relationship with those around you? To have put the interest of others ahead of your own. To be a servant. To reconcile your conflicts. To work through all the things that happen in church life. Or are you still vaulting your interest ahead of others? Still holding on to grudges? Are you still holding on to, to past hurts or to your own preferences? We need to take the invitation to get over ourselves. And so this leads to our second question though. We have the what we are to do now. We are to work out our salvation living in community life. But how are we to work it out? How does this happen? Paul lays it out in verse 13. He says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. The reason that we're able to work it out as we mentioned is because God is the one who is at work. He has just spelled this out in chapter 2 and verse 5 after he gives us this command to do nothing from rivalry or conceit. He then says in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves. Okay, Have this mindset, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now this is provocative. That what Paul says, he says, put on this mindset, which already belongs to you in Christ. God has given you this, now put it on. He's given you all the resources you need. Now avail yourselves of them. Command what you will, God, and give what you command. This is how obedience works, that it's completely reliant upon the grace of God. This is why obedience is not legalistic because it relies upon God to give us everything that we need in order to obey. You may have heard of Clarence Jackson Jr. 1996, he won the Connecticut lottery. $5.8 million that would have changed Clarence Jackson Jr.'s life. The only problem was that he was three days late cashing in his ticket. And the rules of the lottery say that you don't get the money. It was tied up in courts forever. But at the end of the day, Clarence Jackson Jr. has become a household name. In Connecticut, you ask anyone the name of Clarence Jackson Jr. and they can tell you, oh yeah, cash in your lotto ticket on time. And friends, we are so much like Clarence Jackson Jr. That we should laugh and giggle at ourselves. We're guilty of the same thing. We have been given this mind, this mind of Jesus that puts the interest of others ahead of His own. We share in that mind through the Spirit of God at work in us. And yet we fail to walk in that mindset. We fail to put it on. Even though it is ours, we're like lottery winners who have the resources, the infinite resources of heaven, but we fail to draw down on them, to put them into effect. We're like Clarence Jackson, Jr. Infinite resources are ours and we don't avail ourselves of them. Have this mind which is yours in Christ. God is at work in you. And this is the end to which He is working. That you apply, that you put on the mind of Christ that is yours. Because it was this Jesus who did not account equality with God, a thing to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. That's the mind. That's the life that we share in in Christ. He gives that to you. And that is how your obedience works itself out, completely reliant upon the grace of God, begging God, asking that He help you to put on this grace, to put on this mindset. And so friends, this is why we can listen to the Apostle Paul tell us, work it out. And he's not giving you a legalistic command, work it out. Because it completely takes the work of God that He has begun, that He will bring to completion, as we read in 1 verse 6, that God will bring it to completion, that God will continue to do His work, reliant upon Him to give us everything that we need. And so as we live this way, as we seek to work out among us, What God is working in us, He's working in us this selfless mentality of humility, of putting the interest of others ahead of our, of our own. As we work that out in our common life, what does it produce? Soren Kierkegaard picked up these words and named a book after it with fear and trembling. That's the kind of community that it produces. One who fears and one who trembles. Now, we tend to hear those words in a certain way. When we hear fear and trembling, we think of cowering. Because God is like a great master about to mash us. It's not what Paul meant. He actually is echoing Exodus 15, which is Moses' song of redemption after the Red Sea, where the people have been delivered, and Moses is joyously singing, and he mentions fear and trembling because of the mighty acts of God to deliver His people. And friends, this is what it means to to live in fear and trembling. It's to live in the awesome reality of what God has done to redeem the world. It is the big picture of redemption is to get caught up in that. It's the story that's told in verses 6 through 11 that Jesus went down into death, that He rose from the dead, that He's been exalted to God's right hand. He's ruling over all things and one day will return and every knee will bow and every tongue confess that He is Lord, that He is the King over all things. That's the story that we're caught up in and it promotes fear and trembling, a sense of awe and reverence because of what God has done on our behalf. And the invitation is to get lost in that. For that to become most important. And for our needs to become secondary to that. That we put the interest of others. That we put the interest of the kingdom. That we put the interest of the church all ahead of our own. That we learn to live that way. And we trust that God in His grace Gives us all the resources to do that. Friends, that's the challenge for us. Is actually believing that God has given us everything we need in order to fulfill this command. To work out our salvation. To put the interest of others ahead of our own. He gives that to you. Let's trust Him for it. Let's pray. Father, we do acknowledge that our faith is weak. And at so many points, we fail to believe and we fail to draw down upon the resources that You have given to us. Help us to understand all the riches that are ours in Christ Jesus. That You have given us His mind. That it is ours. That we can follow and obey Your commands to work out our salvation, to put the interest of others ahead of our own. And so help us to be this community that lives with fear and trembling, that's caught up in the great story of the Gospel, of all that You're doing. And would You help us to get over ourselves, to put these things aside, to be truly humble, to live for Your glory and for Your honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.